kind of would rather go with them. They're about to have a good old time back there. This morning, uh, we are going to study an entire book of the Bible. Y'all ready? Buckle up. It's a good one. Um, we're going to study the whole book of Philemon. Um, there's a lot of ways to say his name. I don't know the right one, but that's how in South Alabama uh, I probably was taught to say it. So that's what we're going to go with this morning, Philemon. We're going to look at the whole book. But I want to, before we read the passage, um, I want to paint the picture for what's, what's sort of happening here in this story. It's an, it's an amazing story. It is absolutely one of my favorite texts. Such an encouraging and convicting uh, book of the Bible that sometimes we don't, we don't see a whole lot. We don't get to hear from a whole lot. So I want you to picture the scene. There's a knock at the door. And Philemon calls across the house uh, to his son Archippus to go see who's there. And Archippus goes and he looks through the, the peephole. I don't, I don't know if there were peepholes in that day. But he looks through the peephole and he sees what looks to be a familiar face. But he can't quite place it. And so he calls for his mom, Aphia. And Aphia comes to the door and she looks through the peephole. And she knows exactly who that person is. How could she forget because this was a guy who used to live in the house who did something really bad. Um, Philemon, he was a leader in the church of Colossae at the time. Before, you know, before churches met in buildings like this, uh, they met in homes. And uh, by the way, I thought your church met in a home this morning when I pulled up to the wrong address. Uh, <laughs> what's the name of this street? Uh, Parkins Mill. Yeah. There's an East Parkins Mill. Very nice homes. Uh, 302 East Park, Parkins Mill is not this church, but <laughs> nevertheless, I came really close to knocking on the door. Before churches met in buildings like this, they did meet in homes like that, and Philemon was one such homeowner. He, uh, this man we consider to probably be pretty wealthy for his time. He owned land. He owned a home big enough that the church would begin uh, to meet in this house. He also had a lot of employees. He had bond servants who worked on his property, worked in his home, and Philemon at some point came to know Jesus through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And so it's clear throughout this letter that Paul, who's writing to Philemon, loves him. Love is one of the main, uh, really, center points of this letter. The word is used five times, or nine, I think it's, uh, it's used five times in the first nine verses. And so Paul is writing to Philemon because he loves him, and he's about to ask him to do the unthinkable because of this love. Because the man standing at the door used to be one of those bondservants who at some point stole from Philemon and fled. This man is named Onesimus. And it seems that by God's amazing providence, Onesimus, as he was running away, came across the Apostle Paul as well, maybe through jail or something else, but he was converted. And now Paul sends Onesimus back to Philemon with this letter in his hand. And so he knocks on the door. So think about the drama of this moment for a minute. Think about all that's at stake, both for Philemon, for those in his home, for the church, for Onesimus, and really for the, for the church at large. Uh, one scholar wrote on this and said, such a reconciliation in this way would have far-reaching implications in the entire church. It would watch this test case with great interest because if Christianity could work in such tension-filled relationships as this one, 
It can work anywhere. So that's what's at stake in this passage. That's the drama. So now let's jump into the letter. This is what Paul writes to Philemon. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I've derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might uh, serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment of the gospel, but I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me. How much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? So, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. And at the same time, prepare a guest room for me. For I'm hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow soldier or fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but these are the words of the Lord, and they will stand forever. Would you pray with me? God, I do pray that you would bless the reading and hearing and receiving of your word this morning. I pray that we would be deeply encouraged by the love that is in this letter, but also what it represents. Uh, that you would move us to see our own debt and forgiveness of that debt, that you would, Jesus, show up among us. I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts together, would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin by considering the debt that was owed. If you're a note taker, this one is pretty simple. The debt owed is point one, and point two is the debt paid. Um, we're going to talk about the debt that is owed first because this whole letter is really a, about debt. It's based on verse 18 that we believe Onesimus stole from Philemon before he fled. Most likely some money to survive on his own for a while, and now Onesimus is 
returning with this tremendous debt on his record. And so there's two options at this point, right? Um, There's two options, which option one would be that he would pay it back. Um, But most likely he is broke at this point. Think about the prodigal son who's coming and and wanting to um, now option number two is work it off. So if he doesn't have enough money for option one to just pay it back, now he's sort of going to try to resubmit himself potentially to work it off until the debt is paid back in full. But Paul suggests a third way. Uh, And the third way is the reason he's writing this letter, that Philemon actually forgive Onesimus of his debt. So not that he would have to pay it back or work it off, but that he would be forgiven of his debt. Now, I don't like option number three, especially when people owe me uh, in one way or the other. Um, whether they owe me an apology or they owe me actual money. Uh, there was a time where I, in, in, when I was in business 12 years ago where uh, a guy owed me $250, and I could not let that go for about three years. I mean, it was like, you owe me. Uh, just the feeling of someone owing me, I, I, can't, I can't let that go. And, and that's what Paul is suggesting uh, to Philemon, that he forgive him. We want to make people pay um, when they've wronged us, whether it's through guilt or, you know, passive aggressive Facebook posts or through whatever other means. We want to hold out people's debt in different ways in our lives. We don't like option number three. But I do think how we respond to others who have hurt us has a lot to do with how we understand how God has responded to us in our own debt. Um, I really believe that God has preserved this little letter tucked away in the back of the New Testament so that we can partially consider and personally consider the debt that we owe to God. Debt is a way that the Bible talks a lot about sin. Um, Debt is another way to think about how we owe God. The Bible's clear teaching from Genesis to Revelation is that we're all born into sin. So it's not just that we, we do sin, it's that we are sinners. We do not love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We do not love our neighbor as ourself. Psalm 51 says, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Isaiah 53 confesses that all we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned our own way. And Romans 3 says, we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so this sin in all of our lives is like debt accumulated. We owe God. We owe God perfect obedience and a heart that loves him and loves others well. And we just collect debt as we don't do it. Sin has affected every part of our lives. Nothing remains unaffected by sin. This is what theologians often call total depravity. Total depravity doesn't mean that everything is as bad as it could be, only because of God's grace, but it does mean that every part of our lives has been affected by the fall. Everything from our bodies and our minds, our emotions, our wills, our actions, our behaviors, our words, our relationships, our motives, everything. Um, let me illustrate it this way. A few years ago, we were moving into uh, this home that we bought in Clemson. And, you know, you, if you ever move into a home, this is only the second home that we've owned. And, and uh, you kind of start looking around at things that, that need to be fixed, right? Things that can be um, adjusted or painted or kind of the, the cheaper fixes. One of the things that my wife uh, wanted to make sure it happened right away is that we sort of painted every room 
and that we sort of begin replacing some of the light fixtures. Now, there's a, an expensive way to do that, and there's a cheap way to do that. I prefer the cheaper way. <laughs> One of those light fixtures was this chandelier. It's like a chandelier. It's not like chandelier. It's like a little chandelier thing, right, uh, in, the, in the dining room. And it was just this thing that hung, and it was, it was an old, like, bluish-white uh, pattern. And I thought, we don't need to replace that. We can paint that one, right? That, one, that one's a $1 fix. I can get some spray paint at Lowe's. And so not only did I prefer the cheaper option, also uh, prefer the more efficient option, which was to not do the electrical work needed to take down the light <laughs> fixture and take it out of the house like most smart people would do. What I chose to do is we had all these wardrobe boxes because we had just moved into the house. So I made a little makeshift studio around the chandelier. <laughs> and I, so we had our dining room table. I put these boxes up and I, and I literally made a square. I thought this was genius, right around. And I taped up stuff on the ceiling and I, I, I knew I just needed like 10 seconds of spray paint. So I, I literally stuck my hand in. I made just enough of a gap, stuck my hand in, spun the chandelier, sprayed, completely black. It was perfect. I was so proud. Let it dry. Then I took everything down. I'm, you know, I'm not crazy. I'll let it dry at least. And, um, and so I called Kelly in there. Uh, I was so proud. And I was like, hey, check out, check out the chandelier. And she looked. She was like, it looks pretty good what is this black stuff on the table? I was like, I don't know. What do you mean? She was like, there's a little black, is that paint? Wait, what is this over here? And she looked over on the buffet and there's black spray paint dots on the buffet over here. And then she started looking around and it was on the carpet. And it was, we had lots of boxes that were in that room that we hadn't unpacked yet. Little black dots were on top of everything. And the more we started tracking through the house, apparently those dots just sort of got into the air and began to spread across that part of the house. And I don't remember what happened next. I think I may have passed out. Kelly was crying. <laughs> Things were not good in our house uh, for a little while. Here's the illustration that I have in mind. And, and this was Kelly's credit gets, she, Kelly gets credit for this illustration. She's like, later when we were able to talk about it, she was like, that is a picture of total depravity. Because what happens is now those black dots, we think we have this contained in some certain area of our life. We've got our sin boxed in, and we think it only affects this one part. But it always gets out, and it always begins to, to paint and spread across so many other areas of our lives. And that's exactly what had happened in our living room. That's exactly what happens in our own hearts. Sin has spread and darkened different parts of our hearts and our lives in every single area. We, like Onesimus, now stand indebted to a holy God that we owe our very lives to. We have not loved him well. We have not, we have not loved him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so we've stacked this debt up that we could never pay back on our own. So what are our options? Well, we said there were two options. Pay it back, we can't, or work it off. And sometimes we try to do that second option. We try to, to just live better be better than the person beside us, try to work it off, but we can never do enough good to counteract the bad. So the question stands, how can Onesimus ever be restored to Philemon if he can't pay it back or work it off? And how can we? Well, the answer, of course, has to be someone has to pay the debt for us. And that's what makes Paul's offer so amazing. I don't know if you caught it as the letter continued to unfold. That's what makes his offer. He is offering himself as payment to cover Onesimus' debt. Listen to verse 17. If you consider me your partner, 
receive him as you would receive me. And if he has wronged you at all or he owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. There was recently a, a sweet news story in, our, in, in Clemson. Um, this was about a year and a half ago, I think, where this little girl uh, at Clemson Elementary, where our girls go to school, or uh, Lucy's now in middle school, but she was raising money to help pay off the uh, lunchroom debt of other kids in the school. And so she, this little girl, I think she was like second or third grade, started a GoFundMe. And parents started sharing it and started raising money to pay off the, the lunchroom debt of kids in the school. And she, I think she had the goal of raising $250, and she ended up raising like $750, where she was able to, to pay off the debt of other kids in the school. It's, you know, such an encouraging little story. We love when we see things like that because it resonates with us deeply. And that's exactly what Paul's offering in this text. When he says to Philemon, charge that to my account, what is he saying? He's saying, I will take on Onesimus's debt on myself. I will cover his debts with my credits. And he even grabs the pen, probably from Timothy, who Paul was dictating the letter to, and he signs his name to say, it is settled, it is done, it is finished. I'm stamping this. I'm putting my name on it. Here's my signature. One commentator said that Paul, who knew no debt, took on the debt for Onesimus, so that in Paul, Onesimus might be restored to Philemon. You may be catching the parallels here. Martin Luther said that in these verses, Paul is playing the part of Christ in this little play. And it's such a beautiful little play where Paul takes on the role of Christ in forgiving Onesimus' debt out of his own account. Paul, like Jesus, steps in. Jesus who forgives our debts and takes on our debts on himself and gives us his credits. So if you're someone who... We were led even this morning through a confession of sin and, and you're here this morning and maybe God has, God has brought conviction in your own heart about your sin before God, your debt before him. I want you to see, I want you to see some really good news that you have a willing and able substitute who steps in. We can't pay it back. We can't work it off. But now there's a third way. And Jesus takes the stage. You see, in Jesus' substitutionary death, he not only takes our sin on himself, but what else does he do? He restores us into a right relationship with God that we've lost because of the fall. There is no black paint spread across Jesus' record. He's the only one who comes with a holy record. No sin whatsoever, no debt And the only way that sinners can be reconciled to God is through Jesus taking on our debt and us taking on his good standing. As Paul wrote in another place, for God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We might be restored to God. You know, the big theological word for this uh, we often talk about is justification. Justification is that work of God, that act of God where he pardons our sins and accepts us as righteous in God's sight. Why? Because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. There are two sides of this justification, and both of those things are represented in this passage. 
It means that our sin has been placed on Jesus and dealt with on the cross and our debt has been paid. But it also means that our righteous standing before God has been given to us. And this is all received by faith alone. Look at the text. Paul plays the role of Christ. He says, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. God the Son says to God the Father, charge her debt to my account. And he does. And then Paul says, receive him as you would receive me. Who does that sound a lot like? Jesus. Who says to his father, receive him as you would receive me. And he does. Friends, justification by faith alone means that God sees you as he sees Jesus. And he treats you just as if, as it's often said, just as if I have never sinned. This is a beautiful message of the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And really, it's the message of Philemon. It's the message of the gospel. I want to think about some implications of that as we begin to to close this out. As one uh, kind of modern, recent um, worship song puts it, I love this chorus. Now my debt is paid. It is paid in full by the precious blood that Jesus spilled. Now the curse of sin has no hold on me, and who the Son sets free is free indeed. And so what this means is if we have received this forgiveness, we are free. So what are we free for? That's what I want to think about for a minute. Our forgiveness in Jesus means that we are free for something. So let me just name a few implications for us as we close. Our forgiveness in Jesus means that we are free to fail. We're free to to fail. This is an important message for Clemson students. Um, who don't feel much freedom to fail. And if you are a parent of a Clemson student, you're like, no, they don't have freedom to fail. I'm putting good money into that education. But I think it's not just like academically, right? Uh, It's image, it's relationships, um, it's whatever we use to define success. We do not have freedom to find anything less than that standard of success that we have set for ourselves. But the gospel says, no, 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 you're free to fail. You're going to fail. Uh, The kingdom of God doesn't work like nursing school or med school. If you are already justified in the sight of God through the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, what that means is that nothing will ever take away God's view of you when you fail. And so our standing before God is completely secure. That even, not if, but when we fail, God, when we continue to sin, we are still loved and forgiven and there is grace maybe you've heard this story before about robert robinson who became a christian in the mid-1700s after living a really wild life he was converted through the preaching of george whitfield and he was radically changed he became a pastor and he wrote some uh, very famous hymns that we sing but as he got older uh, he began to wreck his life again And he felt that he had made such a mess out of his life that he could never return back to God, that he had just fallen too far, that it was over this time. He had had gone too far. The story goes that one day Robinson found himself riding in a stagecoach with this woman who was a complete stranger, and she was reading a hymn book. And she was flipping through the pages and reading this song called Come Thou Found of Every Blessing. And she was talking to Robinson about how moving the words were streams of mercy and oh how oh to grace how great a debtor and robinson supposedly looks up at her and he says 
Madam, I am the poor, unhappy man who wrote that hymn many years ago. And I would give a thousand worlds if I had them to enjoy the feelings that I had back then. And she responded to him, Sir, the streams of mercy are still flowing for you. It's an amazing story. Um, and it's true for us. No matter what failure is on your mind that you feel like maybe you have just gone too far, surely God couldn't love you anymore. The streams of mercy are still flowing for you. And if we are free to fail, that means the second thing is also true. Our forgiveness in Jesus means we have freedom to admit our failures. That's often where we really struggle. We may feel them internally, but we don't feel freedom to actually speak them, both to God and to others. It means we can finally say those three words that are just so hard. I was wrong. Um, optional two more words. I'm sorry. We have such a hard time bringing those words to our lips, both to God and to others. But we are free to ask forgiveness. Think of the ways that we don't want to admit our wrong. We want to make excuses, shift blame. But the scriptures expose us. The scriptures tell us that we are wrong and we are free to admit to stop making excuses. We are, we're free to stop blaming others because the truth is our blame. And the reason we want to blame shift is because we don't want to admit failure, right? But the, the truth of the gospel is that our blame was then shifted to Jesus. And so now we are free. We are free to admit our failures. And we can go to the Lord and we can go to our friends and family members and neighbors that we have hurt and we can genuinely ask for forgiveness. The third implication here is that we are free to then also forgive others. Now, there's, there would be a lot to unpack under this, but I think this is in the text. We don't get to hold others' failures over their head or make them continually pay for what they did. In fact, justification means that we, we aren't able to do that. When, he, when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, and we prayed it earlier, he talks about forgiveness. Forgive us our debts. Forgive us our debts. As we forgive our debtors. And forgiveness, of course, isn't easy. It's costly. But we can move toward forgiveness because we can see how Jesus has moved toward forgiveness, even at a great cost to himself. When Jesus himself picked up the pen and signed the papers with his own blood and stamped the record and said, it is finished, his forgiveness for our sins came at a cost. And this frees us up to move toward forgiveness and reconciliation with others. It's difficult work. That's why Jonathan's here to walk you through it. <laughs> Two other final implications for this. Our forgiveness in Jesus also means that we are free to find our identity above anything else as a child of God. Onesimus is not only his failure. You see so much lifting up, so much restoration, so much um, reminder of the image of God in this man. He is not the sum total of his failures, of his history. You and I are not defined by our greatest successes or our greatest failures. You are not chiefly 
an engineer, an accountant, a teacher, a mom. You are a child of God. And I think uh, there are many ways that we feel like um, we aren't great at what we do. I feel this in ministry. I feel this as a dad. I feel this as a pastor. I feel this as every role in my life. I feel like I just don't do it great. (laughs) And when I base my identity on how well I'm doing in any one of those areas, it's just going to be a bad day for me. And maybe you feel that with your work or with your parenting. Your identity is not chiefly those roles, but your identity is you are a child before you are a parent. You are a sheep before you are a shepherd. You are a uh, disciple before you are a teacher. And it reorients our identity to be grounded in, in the hope of the gospel for us. And then what that does is then gives us meaning to all those other roles, right? It doesn't dismiss or diminish those roles in our lives. It actually gives us great meaning. Because I'm a child of God, now I can go and be a parent to the glory of God. Now I can go be an attorney or a doctor to the glory of God. And so it gives us freedom to not be defined by how we're doing in those areas, but actually gives us reason to go about our ministries and our careers. The final one is this. And this is really the point of the whole letter. Forgiveness in Christ means that we are free to love the other. We are free to love the one that the world would never expect us to love. We are free, as this passage clearly puts it, to love across ethnic or socioeconomic or political or personal lines which the world has drawn and said, you're over here and you're over here. And it brings together two people from very different backgrounds with very different records and puts them together in one common community. This is an amazing story. Do you hear what Paul's asking Philemon to do? He says, receive him no longer as a slave but as a brother. The gospel changes our relationships. Love is entered into the story, entered into the narrative, and it reorients the way that we have to respond to others. Anyone across any different line, we are free to love. I think this is an amazing example that gives us a lot of encouragement, that gives us a lot of power, that gives us a real practical step. Who is the other in your life? Who is it that you have a hard time, who is it that I have a hard time loving right now? Jesus has come to love the other, that's us. He's loved across every barrier in order that we might be reconciled to him, and now he calls us to step across barriers to love others. As the scholar said earlier, if Christianity can work in such a tension-filled relationship as in Colossae, it can work anywhere. Turns out it can work anywhere, as we have seen evidenced in the world for 2,000 years. And so the gospel is true for us. We are free. We are free to repent. We are free to worship. We are free to love, and that's really good news. I'll close with these, these words from that hymn that we quoted earlier. Ode to grace. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy grace now like a fetter bind my wandering, wandering heart to thee. Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray that you would bind our hearts to you. Out of the grace that we have received, out of the grace that we have received,